that song that we sang there, uh, kind of in the middle of the set, Boldly I Approach the Throne, you think about how awesome God is. We uh, do not deserve time with Him. He is a, a powerful God, our Creator, a God who is full of grace and compassion and gentleness, and, uh, and we don't deserve that, but by God's grace... And through His Son, Jesus Christ, we can boldly approach the throne because Christ has made us righteous by His death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, <clears throat> that is the reason we come together to worship on a Sunday morning. It's the reason why we, throughout the week, get together as believers in Christ because we share in that faith and that belief. We trust that God is good. We trust that His Son, Jesus Christ, saves us from our sins we trust that if we place our faith in Him, we are in a right relationship and we get to worship with Him. And so it is our desire as a church to continue that mission, to go out and share that truth and gospel with people so that we can involve people in the life of Christ and involve Christ in the lives of people. So that's what we're about. That's what we're doing. And as we move into our last sermon and message on Esther, we're going to be reminded that we're called out to live with courage and it's backed by providence. In other words, as we go out and we step out of our comfort zone or we're asked to do things that we don't want to do, we'll do it with courage, we'll do it with boldness, and we'll trust that God put those things in our path for a reason. And as we step out of our comfort zone and as we follow Him, we'll be backed with the providence of God. It may not always go the way we want it to go, right? It may not always be perfect, at least according to our uh, way of measuring things, but in God's way, it'll be what He designed and plans. Esther did that, and for her, there was great victory. And so at the end of our story, we see that they take time to celebrate. Now, we talked a little bit about that last week and what it meant to celebrate. We're going to hit that even more because we go into really the reason why the whole book of Esther was even written, and that was to tell us why the Israelites celebrate a holiday, even to this day, and it's called, we usually call it Purim, but they would call it Purim. So, Purim. We're going to take a look at that today and their celebration and the excitement that surrounds it. <clears throat> so, as we do, I just want to, not sure that one's there for, um, want to look at a, a couple things, and one is just simply to remind you where we're at, and I think We've, we've played um, a few videos this morning. I'm going to have a couple more, partly because I've got to save my voice a little bit. You might be able to tell. I've got that cold, and some of you are like, I've got that cold too. So, so you, know, you know what that means. But I'm going to have um, a video show you, just review a little bit of what has been going on in the life of Esther to bring us up to speed. So if you've been missing the series up to this point, you may say, well, I don't know what happened up to the end. So this will, will bring you up to speed and let you know a little bit about what's going on, and then we'll rejoin our text together. The Purim holiday takes us back to a time in history when genocide against the Jews was attempted some 2,400 years ago. It marks the Jewish people's rescue from the plot of Haman, a high officer of the Persian Empire and advisor to King Ahasuerus. Haman's rage was incited by a single Jew, Mordechai, who refused to bow before him. Rather than seeking revenge against Mordechai alone, Haman plotted against the entire Jewish people. 
Haman gained permission from the king, Ahasuerus, to do as he pleased against the Jews. He legislated a pogrom that would wipe out every Jew in the empire on a single blood-soaked day. Haman cast lots to determine the day when he and his minions would destroy the Jews. In leaving the state entirely to chance, Haman's message was unmistakable. The Jews who believed in the providence of a beneficent God would be subject to the blind whim of fate. A casual roll of the dice would be the instrument that seals their end, while the God of the Jews would stand helplessly by. Haman's challenge came at a crucial point in history. His provocations were a test. Was God still relevant in the post-biblical age when open miracles were no longer common and prophecy was coming to an end? In the end, the Jews were saved from Haman's plot, but pointedly, they were saved in a non-miraculous way. In the events of Purim, serendipitous happenings conspired to bring about unexpected results. Alone, each of these events could be seen as nothing more than a fortuitous coincidence. But taken together, they weave a miraculous chain of events orchestrated by God. King Ahasuerus holds a spectacular six-month feast in the capital city of Shushan. It just so happens that when Queen Vashti refuses to obey the king, he has her eliminated. And when a global beauty contest is held to replace her, it just so happens that Esther, a Jewish girl, is chosen. When palace guards plot to assassinate the king, Mordechai, Esther's relative, happens to overhear and foil the plot. One night, it just so happens that the king can't fall asleep. He asks for the Book of Records, which just so happens to open to the page recording Mordechai's long-forgotten act of loyalty. At that moment, Haman happens to approach the king for permission to hang Mordechai. Instead, Ahasuerus tells Haman to dress Mordechai in the royal robes and parade him on horseback through the streets of Shushan. The heroics of Mordechai and Esther was in recognizing God's hand and taking the necessary action, no matter how challenging it may be. When Esther fears approaching the king uninvited because one could be killed for such presumptuousness, Mordechai tells her, it is certain that the Jewish people will be saved one way or another. God promised it will never be destroyed. The only question, Esther, is if you will rise to the challenge God has given you, enabling redemption to come through your hand. This is your big moment, the reason for which you were born. At the climactic moment, Esther hosts a banquet where she reveals that she is Jewish and exposes Haman for planning genocide against her people. The king is shocked and orders that Haman be hanged on the very same gallows he prepared for Mordechai. Ahasuerus grants the Jews the right to defend themselves on the 13th of the month of Adar, the day of the planned attack. The Jews defeat their enemies, including Haman's ten sons, who, like their father before them, are hanged on the gallows. Mordechai enacts an annual holiday with feasting, giving gifts to poor, and food to friends. Appropriately, the holiday is called Purim, literally, lots that are cast, commemorating how Haman's worldview that everything is determined by chance was overturned by the Jewish ideal that God is present. Well, there you go. There's Esther in three and a half minutes. So, I say a picture's worth a thousand words, so that fills in all the other gaps, right? You got all the pictures in there. But uh, our story of Esther, that'll hopefully bring you up to speed and let you know kind of where we're at, because we're going to talk about, at the end of the entire book, uh, this idea of, of Purim and how Purim was, was started and initiated by Mordecai and confirmed by Esther and confirmed by the king so that the people would remember this great event that took place, that God delivered the people of Israel from Haman's hand. Now, you'll, you've probably heard a lot of different pronunciations throughout there, Haman instead of Haman, and a couple things like that, and certainly 
different people, different backgrounds are going to have some different uh, ways to pronounce things. So we're, we're, we're Americans, we're uh, English speakers, and we always mispronounce things, it seems like. So uh, at least according to the rest of the world. But Esther, living with courage, backed by providence. Let's get into this. We're in chapter 9, uh, verse 23. We're going to start there. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Esther. I'll also have it above, so you can take a look there. And as we do, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who does not forget about us. You do not forsake us. You love us. You care for us. It, uh, it never ends. Thank you that we can boldly approach the throne because of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us upon the cross. Thank you that we, on one hand, um, can fear you as a righteous God, but know that we also are securely resting in your hands and trust you that you always do things that are right and just and good. And because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ, we lean upon you wholeheartedly. Help us through life as we go through our time here and we get anxious about things. We worry. We wonder about your providence. We wonder about your sovereignty. We wonder about our neighbors and whether they're believers, our friends, our children, our family members. God, we pray that as we think about those people in our lives, that we would be faithful to live out your truth, faithful to live out the gospel so that they can see it, that we would be an Esther and we'd be courageous. We trust that you bring people into our our path, along our path, that we can talk to and share the faith with. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Esther chapter 9. I'm actually going to start. I don't have it up here. I'm going to start with verse 22 because I think it's a good reminder. It says, Because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies... That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of, and this is the key part here, they were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. That was what they were commanded to do after they had victory, after the war already happened and they were able to defend themselves. It went out, Mordecai told them, you are to have a time of feasting, which fits the whole book of Esther. Remember, that's how the whole book started. The king was feasting. So let's keep on feasting, right? Let's keep on having those parties. Uh, And then he goes on rejoicing, time of rejoicing, and sending gifts to one another. Well, let's pick up now in verse 23. It says, so the Jews agreed to it. Okay, They said, yes, Mordecai, we've seen now what God has done. We've seen the protection. So we agree to continue the practice they had begun as Mordecai had written them to do. That was a first letter that Mordecai had written. It's going to make reference to a second letter here in a little bit. It says, for Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agadite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the poor, that is, the lot, to crush and destroy them. And you kind of saw up there they had dice. There's uh, some misunderstanding, well, not misunderstanding, but there's, there's some question as to exactly how the lot was cast and what that looked like. But it would be similar to us maybe casting some dice and so forth and kind of landing by luck. Well, it just so happened when he cast the lot, it happened to be on the month of Adar on the 13th day and 14th day and so forth. And so that's when those things happened and the events happened. That's what he's referring to there. Continuing on, he says, But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan 
Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. So he's, again, just kind of going back over the story, reminding us what's taken place. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word Pur. So that's why it's called Purim, because of the casting of the lots and how it fell. Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what happened to them. The Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim would not lose their significance in Jewish life, and their memory will not fade from their descendants. So as it went out, he tells us, and I think possibly Mordecai is the one writing this. There's uncertainty as to who may be writing the book. But, but for whatever it is, God tells us that, that they went out and they celebrated, and they, they reminded themselves, they reminded the future generations that God is a God who, who, who keeps his promises. God is a God who protects Israel and to this very day, people are still celebrating this holiday, Purim. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to take a look at some of the things that you might run across today. If you were to go to Israel or if you were to celebrate, and I'm sure there are those that celebrate it here uh, in the synagogues and those who are of the Jewish faith that still celebrate Purim here in America. But these are some of the things you might want to know if you were to celebrate Purim. If you come across Purim, which usually happens in the spring, uh, late winter, springtime, somewhere in there, uh, you would want to know what the actual greeting is, which is very similar to a lot of our greetings around Christmas time. We might say Merry Christmas or Happy Easter, things like that. Well, theirs is just Happy Purim. So there you go. If you're in a situation you want to go celebrate, remember Happy Purim. You also need to know that you should probably dress up. Okay, so traditionally, costumes and masks are worn to schools, synagogues, and carnivals on Purim. This is in part due to the notion of, of Esther concealing her true identity, this is the theory behind it at least, as a Jew out of fear, but it is also a continuation of the way the story is kind of topsy-turvy and questionable along the way. So, so the notion that everything is upside down, it's very much a part of the tradition. So they dress up and that sort of thing. Um, there's, there's not sh- there's little evidence as to when this started happening. Maybe around the medieval age they started doing this and started dressing up. But today, you'll find if you celebrate Purim that you need to dress up. You might even need to wear a mask. And it's, again, just to kind of symbolize covering that identity. A second thing is that you would prepare some sort of a basket, okay? A tradition of making Purim baskets or baskets of food to give to friends and members of your community has its origin that's really quite clear. It's actually mandated uh, there in verse 22. It talks about it. And so you can uh, see in verse 22 of chapter 9 that it says, you know, you need to give to, to people. And so this is one of the ways they do that. They prepare baskets and give to one another. <coughs> Excuse me. Also... You'll see, and we had Reuben talk about this uh, here a few weeks ago, where when he visited a synagogue, they would read the story. Some would perform the story. Uh, oftentimes when they do, and the word Haman comes up, they have noisemakers, and they'll make a bunch of noise because they don't want to hear the name Haman. He's the enemy, right? <clears throat> so they will retell the story. Uh, they will have it read. They will perform it, act it out, 
all those types of things. And you can just imagine if they were acting this out, what it would be like for Haman when he walks, you know, onto the stage. And as they hang him, there's probably a lot of cheering, which maybe makes us feel uncomfortable. But you know what? That's, that's just kind of the way the story goes. So, um, And then there's feasting. Uh, and that's told in this story throughout. Again, chapter 1, there's a lot of feasting all throughout the book. And then again, in verse 22 of chapter 9, it talks about feasting, much like many of the other religious holidays, much like our holiday as well. And the one thing that's really unique to this celebration is hamantashen, which is a cookie. So there's a picture of it. Uh, It's shaped kind of interesting, and in in the middle, the the tashen part comes actually from the the German word um, tashen, or I think it's, if I remember right, Montaschen, which is poppy seed. So they'd fill the middle of that Danish with uh, a poppy seed, and then they'd fold it up. And the idea, supposedly the story behind it is, the, the reason it's shaped like this is because it's what Haman's hat would have looked like. We don't really know what Haman's hat looked like. Uh, the Scriptures doesn't tell us what Haman's hat looked like, but it's an interesting theory. So um, they started this, and Hamantaschen is still really available. However, instead of just poppy seed, <coughs> excuse me, as a feeling, they'll have all kinds of things like, um, you know, jams or chocolates, things like that that are kind of wrapped in the middle of it. So this has become probably a favorite treat when they celebrate Purim. Well, I thought also I would give you a little bit of a visual for it because I think it's, as I was just looking and researching and, and looking at how they do Purim today, I ran across this video. I thought, well, this might give us a good taste of what it would be like uh, to to celebrate Purim today. So we'll see how this plays, and, and maybe I'll give you a good picture of what it looked like. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> no, it's not Halloween. It's not Mardi Gras. And I'm not a Midburn. We are celebrating Purim, probably the most fun Jewish holiday of the year. On Purim, we dress in costume, dance in the streets, have a big meal, and are as merry as can be. People eat these delicious cookies called Haman's ears in Hebrew, send gifts of food to their friends, and donate to charity for the holiday. Traditionally, Jews gather to listen to a reading of the Book of Esther, which retells the story of Purim. Purim takes us back over 2,000 years to the Persian Empire, where the Jews were living in exile. The heroes of the story of Purim are Esther and her uncle Mordechai, who saved the Jews from a wicked decree calling for their murder. After the Jews overcame their foes, they celebrated, and so we celebrate today. So now that you know the basics of Purim, put on your crazy hat and come join the party. All right, there you go. So, anybody want to go celebrate Purim over in Israel? A few of you, some of you are like, yes, yeah, my kind of party. And some of you are like, no, I want nothing to do with that. So, um, I know, that's, that's just the way uh, extroverts, introverts are probably, right? That is um, to remind people of what God did over, well, about 2,500 years ago, a little under 2,500 years ago. God loves his people. He protects them. He cares for them. And he does that for Israel, and he does that for the church, and he does it for you personally. 
And so I want to take a look at this idea of celebration and how we as followers of Jesus Christ should celebrate. So let's look at a few more things here in the text, and then we're going to come back together and just talk through some of these ideas on celebration. Uh, Verse 29 to 32, it talks about how Queen Esther also confirmed this celebration. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, uh, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote this second letter. So Mordecai writes the first. She comes along with Mordecai's help, writes the second letter, with a full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus. In order to confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. Now, if you remember back earlier in the story, when Esther was about to go to the king, she asked the people to fast for her. And the people would fast, and they would pray. At least it doesn't say praying in there, but but usually fasting is connected with praying. And then they would lament. And that idea there, lamenting, is is a prayer before God. God, we don't understand why this is happening, but we trust you through it, is the idea of lamenting. And so they they would fast, and they would pray. And so that's part of Purim. So Esther commanded, Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were then written into the record. So not only did Mordecai suggest it, now Esther has suggested it. It's written down and it's confirmed. It's become a legal national holiday, right? We have one of those tomorrow that we don't really think too much about, but we do know if any of you are going to go to the post office tomorrow, what are you going to find? It's closed. You're going, to like, you're going to say, I don't get a day off. But you show up, and it's closed, right? And that's always irritating. You're like, oh. But that happened. We have national holidays. Those are the days that were set aside. And so um, the, those, those things happen that way. Um, here we have Purim, who was, you know, it was a national holiday confirmed by Esther, confirmed by Mordecai, and written into the record. Then you get to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the, the final. It's only three verses long. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores. That's kind of an interesting sentence in there just to throw in. Uh, but I think what it does is it, it lines up with the next phrase, all of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments. He was able to impose this tax out throughout the whole entire province. And people respected him enough to pay it and not fight him on it. And those types. So he, he, was, he was well feared throughout the land. He imposed this tax. All his powerful and magnificent accomplishments are detailed in the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him. Have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Media and Persia? So not only is it recorded in Scripture, but there's other recordings out there as well that talk about Mordecai and the king and Esther. Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for their well-being of all his descendants. So as you close up this book, and that's the last thing that was written in here, we're just told of Mordecai and where he stood before the Jewish people and where he stood before the whole land, and that was he was well-respected. And he was much more respected than Haman, when Haman's decree went out, the city was, was in a, a cry of confusion. They didn't understand what was going on. They, they said that. Everybody was confused. But when Mordecai wrote his letter and sent it out, everybody rejoiced. And Mordecai established a great reputation. And so you see this great leader who is leading 
uh, this, this land. Well, here's what I want to kind of narrow in on as we think about how to apply this and move it into our day-to-day. Celebrations are more than just fun. They're worship. Okay? If you look at this story, what you see throughout the story is God's providence all throughout. You see him carrying Esther throughout. You see him carrying Mordecai throughout. You see in that video I just showed, I like how they said, it just so happens, right? It just so happens that this happened. It just so happens that this next event took place. All those things. Well, that's God's providence at work. God carries things along. There's no coincidence for those who believe in Jesus Christ. There's no coincidence for those who believe in God. We know that God is sovereignly in control. Things don't just happen. God is in control, and those things are happening for a reason. So as those things go by, and you get to the end, and there's great victory, and now the Jewish people were able to be saved and delivered through this, there's a celebration. But if there's just a party for party's sake, then that's all it is, is a party. But if there's party with meaning and significance behind it, Well, now it's moved into worship. And that's what they did. They not only had a party to celebrate who God is, but they had a party to worship him and say, this is our awesome God who has power to save us and who keeps us in his hands. And they recognized it. So celebrations are more than just fun parties. You might even put in there. They're actually worship. So three things that I think help us understand that. First one is this. Celebrations mean more when you know the reason why. Right? Celebrations mean more when you know the reason why. The reason the people had such a great celebration there in the land of, of Media and Persia is because they understood, the Jews understood why they were celebrating. Now for them, it was, it was really clear they thought up to that point that they were going to be uh, killed by Haman and his, his forces, maybe even from Ahasuerus and the king and his support, that they were going to be overtaken. And so they saw the deliverance, and they saw it firsthand, and so they were excited about it. Today, even when you ask somebody about Purim and what it means, they might even be able to tell you, well, we know about the story about Haman. He wanted to, to kill all the Jews off, and God saved them, Right? And so they understand there's significance behind it. Celebration means more when you know the reason why. So a question comes up for us. There's a lot of celebrations we have as as Christians. Sunday mornings ought to be a celebration for us. Do you know why? Look at Acts chapter 20. This is talking about the missionary journey, and uh, Paul here is, is going on his missionary journey. Luke is writing. He's part of, of the group, the team that's out there serving with Paul. So he says, we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of the unleavened bread. In five days, we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. So they had seven days okay, to, to be able to get together and worship God. But this is what it says. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to part the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. They waited until the first day of the week. Why? Why not do it when they first got together? What's so significant about Sunday? Well, you find the answer when you go into really any of the Gospels. Matthew 28, 1 tells us after the Sabbath, okay, Sabbath is on Saturday, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and Mary went to view the tomb. And what did they find when they went to the tomb? Nothing. 
Why? Because Christ was risen. The reason we celebrate on a Sunday is because Jesus Christ, our Lord, rose from the dead. It's the first day of the week. That's a significant thing to our faith. I know we talk a lot about the death, and we talk about how the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ instead of being poured out upon us, and we praise God for that. But do you know that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we would not have eternal hope? He raised from the dead to give us eternal life. And so we come together on a Sunday morning to celebrate. Now, there's a lot of other things we want to do. We want to exhort each other. We want to encourage each other. We want to equip the saints and all those types of things. But first and foremost, we need to celebrate our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a celebration. That's why we come together on a Sunday morning. So we go through a lot of things. We try to to do our best to, to celebrate Him and make it about Him and not about us. Because that's what a celebration is, right? When you go out and have a birthday party, when you say, hey, we're going to go out and celebrate so-and-so's birthday, our last one in our family was, was Elena's. So we, you know, we, we set some time aside, we, we have a cake with her, we, we sing, and it's about Elena. It's Elena's day. We celebrate her and her birthday. When we come on a Sunday morning, Sunday morning isn't about me. It's not about how I feel when I come in. It's not about the things I can look around and criticize or, oh, I didn't feel very good this morning. Oh, man, that message wasn't, oh, that song wasn't very good. Or, you know, we can go on and on and on about the things that I don't like. But the question I need to always have is, was Christ honored and celebrated? Right? Because this day isn't about me. It's about him. We need to know the significance behind our celebrations. Celebrations mean a lot more when we know the reason why. Secondly, celebrations mean more when you're all on the same page. So if you sat around, like you've gone to maybe times, so in our family we'll do this at times where we like celebrate more than one birthday at a time. And, and when you start to sing the song, have you been in that awkward moment Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear. And then it's like everybody's like, blah, 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 you know, like they throw out all these different names because they can't, they don't know, is it Joe's or Billy's or Bob's or, you know, I just throw names out there. But <laughs> whose, whose birthday is it? Because you've got three people you're celebrating. And so uh, it always comes out kind of, well, that's what happens when we celebrate and we celebrate with different thoughts and ideas and things that are all coming together. Just, just turns into a, a mess. Now, I think when we celebrate birthdays and we have multiple people, that's okay. And it is kind of nice when you say, okay, how are we going to say this when we get to the names? But uh, celebrations mean more when you're all on the same page. When you all come together. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says, When brothers, oh, what then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. He gives us a point here, and in 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about the worship and, and a celebration on a Sunday, and he talks about how the fact that we need to have some sort of order. 
Because if we don't have order, then it can get rather confusing. If people come in and they begin to share, oh, my story, or they begin to share these other things, and it happens to be about that person, then it takes the glory away from Christ, and it puts it on something else, and then all of a sudden, you're not celebrating Christ anymore. But when we come together and we say, oh, our hymn, or our songs, or our praise songs, or all those things are going to be about Christ, then he becomes the focus. When the teaching is about Christ, he becomes the focus. When the revelation is about Christ. Now, you'll find in, in their churches today, we, uh, we hold to Scripture. We want to get all of our teaching from Scripture. I hear this more and more. I don't want to, I don't know what your past is or anything like that, so maybe you could step on a few toes. But there are times, I think, when teachers can get up and they say, I had this vision this last week. And they'll talk about a, a vision. And oftentimes, at least when I've heard about those visions, it's not about Christ. It's about the person who had the vision. Be careful of that. Because when we come together, we ought to be about Christ, not about that individual. So again, it goes back to, are we all on the same page? Do we come together on a Sunday morning to celebrate Christ? That's what it ought to be about. And in doing that, we build each other up. All the things we do, the worship we do, is to be about Christ. Celebrations mean more when we're all on the same page. Then this last one, celebrations have a greater success with good leaders. So in our story, you have Mordecai, who was a great leader. He was able to implement the celebration. He was to say, this is, this is how we ought to celebrate. And we're to have feasting, we're to have rejoicing, we're to take gifts and we're to give them to other people. And he put that out there and he said, this is what we ought to do. This is how we celebrate. And here the Jews are, 2,400 years later, still celebrating Purim. Celebration with great leaders. Celebrations have a great, greater success with good leaders. Um, I want to take a look at a, a passage here. 1 Corinthians 11, I'll explain to it, I'll explain a little bit more as you move forward. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Now here he's talking about communion, which is another form of celebration we have about Jesus Christ. Communion is when we take uh, the bread and the juice and remember what Christ has done. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus instituted this, this communion, this idea that we celebrate and we remember who he is. His death, burial, his resurrection, his body that was given for us, and those types of things. And so we do that on a regular basis as a way of celebrating Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Christ instituted it, and we follow his lead. Christ is the one that instituted salvation, and we follow his lead, and we celebrate what he's given to us. He's the one that rose from the dead, and so we celebrate it. He gave us his word so we can read it and we can understand it, and we follow it. He started all of those things, and he is our leader. The Bible says very clearly that Christ is the one that leads the church. He is the head of the church, and so we follow him as our leader. And in involved church, we try on a Sunday morning 
as I said earlier, to do a good job of celebrating Christ. That goes from just trying to create an atmosphere, you know, an atmosphere and a, a gymnasium that maybe is a little more warm and more worshipful to uh, order of service. I know Luke goes into a lot of time and prep, thinking through how things flow together, the songs, videos, things like that, to help bring us into worship. As I think about a message in preparation, I want to help us think about Christ and point our attention to Christ and celebrate Christ. We want it to be encouraging. So as you leave, you say, yes, I know more about who Christ is, and I'm excited and I'm motivated to honor him and live for him and speak about him in truth as I leave from this place. All of those things are meant to help us worship and celebrate Christ. That's our goal. That's what we try to do. So celebration is a good thing. In fact, I'd even say it's a biblical thing. So what are some of our celebrations? We've got some coming up, right? We're in the holiday season. Uh, We know Thanksgiving's coming up, and certainly when we have Thanksgiving, we talk about what we're thankful for. If we were to say, what's the main idea of Thanksgiving? We'd say, to talk about what we're thankful for. Right? We go back to history. We can talk about those who first had the Thanksgiving and what they were thankful for. And then we can talk about what we're thankful for. Some of our other celebrations, especially in the Christian world, uh, we have Christmas, which is coming up. And I think the other one that's probably our top uh, celebration is Easter. So Christmas, we're all on the same page there. We know what that's about, right? About Santa Claus and presents. Uh, That's what the world, you know, obviously wants us to see what Christmas is about. That's certainly what those who sell gifts want us to believe what Christmas is about. But we know that Christmas is about the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate. Uh, I don't have, has anybody ever had a birthday cake for Jesus? Okay, got a few of you. I remember the first time I was at a church, and they're like, hey, we're going to have the Christmas party, and they brought out a birthday cake, and I thought, oh, that's weird. And I was like, actually, that's not too weird. We have birthday cakes all the time for people. Why not have a birthday cake for Jesus? And it's a way that we in our culture celebrate. Now, I'm not telling you you have to. I just think it's good to remind us that that's what we're celebrating, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we do that today. My dad next year is turning 70. It'll be his 70th birthday. And we'll celebrate his birthday. And he doesn't care about the number of years. In fact, he doesn't even care that we celebrate his birthday. But he cares that we all come together. And that's important for him. And in a lot of ways, I think that's the idea God our Father has with us when we, he sees his children come together in unity with a purpose. He delights in that. And he rejoices in that. So on a regular Sunday morning, we do that because we want to take this time out of our lives and say it's important enough for us to get together to celebrate the God who gave us life and the God who redeemed us. How awesome is that? So we take our Sundays to celebrate. And then we do things like Christmas to celebrate the birth. And then we do things like Easter which again, confirms Sunday morning. Oftentimes we think of Easter, we think of the death of Jesus Christ, which is true. He died and he took our sins. But Easter is really about the resurrection. That he came to life. And so we celebrate both his birth 
his death, and his resurrection. Those are all great things and things that we celebrate. That's just a few things, but we also, I think, need to be reminded and celebrate our own new birth in Jesus Christ, our salvation. Here's a few verses just to think about. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, it says, For you know that you were, okay, he's talking very personal here, you and I were redeemed from our empty way of life, inherited from our fathers. It's not very nice, but it's true. Empty way of life, without purpose, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. His death, that he went to the cross, shed his blood, he died for us, he became the sacrifice for us, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. In other words, we've already been given so many great things. Think about all the other great things that continue to happen because we're in this relationship with God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. And we've received this this new life in Christ. We have this relationship with God, and it's greater than any other relationship that's out there. He's given it to us. And we ought to celebrate it. And when we celebrate, we ought to worship because we know the significance behind it. (coughs) Celebrations are more than just fun. They're worship. So, concluding thoughts as we come to a close here. One, celebrating is a biblical concept. Celebrating who God is, (coughs) excuse me, and what he has done is worship. So we think about who God is, what he's done for me personally, what he's done for us as a church, what he's done for all of mankind, and we ought to be brought to worship. Sunday mornings we do that. We can do that through life groups, obviously. We can do that personally, one-on-one with God as we're, we're worshiping him, we're celebrating what he's done. And then we have the major holidays, the Christmas and the Easter. All of those are meant to be celebrations. Always know who you are celebrating, and why. A celebration without knowledge is just a party, right? So we need to know who we're celebrating and why. Otherwise, we're just a bunch of party animals. We ought to be worshipers. I could, I could have tweeted that. I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, our response, how do we want to end all this? One, would you be bold and celebrate your salvation birthday with an unbeliever? By that, what I mean is this week, um, in the days ahead, would you be bold enough to to celebrate, to let somebody know that you became a follower of Jesus Christ and it was a great thing? We talk about our faith with other people that we would say in and maybe you pray. Like maybe the, the first step is, God, put someone in my path providentially, put someone in my path that I could actually sit down with. And maybe they'll even ask the question like, what's one of the, I mean, this would be really obvious. What's the best decision you've ever made? You're like, huh, my best decision is I follow Christ. You know, that would be really simple, right? But providentially, you, you get into that relationship and you're able to just talk about your faith and your salvation. And you can celebrate with an unbeliever. 
That's how we witness with people. That's how we talk with people about our faith. Secondly, do you understand the full meaning of each Christian celebration? If you don't, uh, which one would you like to learn more about? So we have a time where we can respond. We'll have a couple minutes here at the end. And you just think about these things. And you might go, you know, I don't really know much about this uh, holiday, this celebration. I'd like to know more about it and know the significance about it so that when it comes up, you understand it more. So do you understand the full meaning of each Christian celebration? Which one would you like to learn more? Jot that down. You can ask me some more questions. I may not know as, as much as well, and so it'll be interesting to, to dig into that together. And then one more that you can have. You can write this down if you'd like to. Read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 25 several times this week. It's a great passage just to remind us how fortunate we are to be saved. How awesome it is to be a child of God. So you can respond to those things. You can look at them. You can say, you know what? I'm going to try to do all three of those. I'm going to do one. One that may stand out to you. You may have questions about one of those. Uh, Think about those as we close. I'm going to read to you just a couple verses from that 1 Peter 3 chapter and then just let you take some time to respond. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Amen. That's right. And we should be able to celebrate that. So think about those things as we close here.